Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jason Hafner, who is Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Rice University. His lab at Rice uh, studies nanophotonics and interfacial biology. Um, welcome, Jason. Thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So before we get into your, uh, your papers, uh, I want to set the context uh, of these two things. So nanophotonics and interfacial biology, what do those things mean? Yeah, sure. So uh, nanophotonics is just sort of a part of nanoscience in general. You know, nano has been a big thing since uh, sort of the 90s. This idea that if we shrink material matter or control uh, materials down to the nanometer scale, they interact with the world differently. And that's sort of big picture what we study. So as you can imagine, <clears throat> nanophotonics is doing that with light. So normally we think of light as not being real nano. You know, the wavelength of light is about 500 nanometers. This is why we have like a limit to what we can see in an optical microscope. But as the light interacts with materials down at the nanometer scale, some materials will focus the light down to the nanometer scale or, you know, uh, heat the light or heat up due to the light in special ways. So really big picture nanophotonics is just how can we manipulate light at the nanometer scale with nanomaterials? Yeah. Okay, okay, we'll get into the details of that. Uh, does, it, uh, does it have any sort of computational uh, applications also? Uh, oh, does it have, uh, uh, oh, you say computational? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, does, it, does it have uh, some sort of chip design or anything like that uh, with that? Or Right, yeah, okay. So there are two ways to go with that. Yeah, so computational, like, so we use many computational tools, and it's actually pretty yeah. critical uh, in many areas of research these days, but especially these interactions. Um, in terms of an application, there are ideas, there are some aspects of why light would be better than you know electrons uh, right. on chips. Uh, I mean, it's not. It's still definitely sort of a research phase uh, stage thing. You know, you, how do you do the couplings and and in my field, we can send light. We can turn light into an electronic excitation and send it down a metal wire and have it come yeah. out the other end as light, which is really cool. But it's very lossy. You know, metals you lose a lot of, of the energy. So it's definitely yeah. being looked at. But for now, you know, I, I don't think in terms of completely taking over a chip, that's still quite a ways away. 
Yeah, I, I was just thinking, you know, uh, one of the issues is obviously this quantum tunneling issues that conventional chips get into. Yeah. Uh, this issue of uh, heat um, on chips. So I was just wondering if if uh, there is a direction there. What is interfacial biology? So really there is just a general way to talk about uh, membranes. So, so if you think about, you know, the, the picture of a cell that you saw whenever the last time you took biology was, you know, it had this outer circle of the membrane and then inside all these organelles. And that picture kind of sh sells membrane short because <laughs> really yeah. the membrane surrounds every one of those organelles. You know, the, 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 um, the cell is full of membranes and on these interfacial membranes, lots of the actions, lots of the biological uh, action happens. So membranes are a huge uh, part of sort of microbiology and cell biology, but they're also the hardest to study, which we can get into later when we talk about uh, what we're doing with it. So really, to me, it just means, you know, where the liquid meets another liquid or the liquid meets the solid, if you want to think of the membrane as a solid. That's the interfacial part. And so does it have some applications in, uh, so, so you, you mentioned cell biology, so yeah. uh, COVID getting, getting into the cell and, and using the cell uh, infrastructure to replicate itself. Uh, do, do we have some applications in that direction? Yes, for sure. So that's that's getting sort of into synthetic biology, you know, hijacking. Yeah. That's getting into all biotechnology, really. Sort of, if you, I've sort of worked on sensors a lot, and I've always, it's always an interesting realization to me that the most powerful sensing technologies we have are from hijacking biology. You know, in assays, we work great. And the critical part is the antibodies we get from an animal. And, uh, you know, PCR, the famous thing, you know, amplifies DNA. It's completely hijacked biology. So, uh, yeah, so I forgot what I was talking about. But, <laughs> but yeah, so synthetic yeah. biology is that idea of taking that even further. Membranes are just one component of all that, I would say. It, you know, they need to understand membranes to make a lot of that work. But a lot of biology you can hijack without really understanding exactly what's going on. <laughs> so yeah. even if we don't perfectly understand membranes, they'll still be a component of, of that kind of technology. There is one area that is membrane, you know, biomembrane specific, and that is you take the cell's membrane and you lay it flat on a surface and then integrate it into sort of a chip kind of a, a technology. Mm. It has to be kind of a wet chip. So these are called yeah. ported lipid membranes. And the idea is you can take some of the ion channels and things from a cell and then turn them into sensors on a chip. And that also is kind of like the photonics, uh, the nanophotonics thing. It's, it's, it's in progress. It's not happening uh, uh, any day now. But it's definitely an interesting <laughs> idea that's, that's coming along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I want to start with one of your older papers. Um, it's entitled A Tunable Plasmon Resonance in Gold Nano Bells. Right. Uh, I don't know anything about this, Jason. So uh, gold nano bells, um, I'm just assuming, you know, this, this is some sort of a, a, a gold um, tube, nano tube of sorts. Right. What exactly is the belt? Yeah, so the belt really is just... Uh sort of the, the way we, that we say it has a rectangular cross-section. So, yeah. you know, generally it's just a wire. It's something that's really long in one dimension and then nano in cross-section. But for some reason, you know, the names of these nanomaterials are all just kind of made up by the people that write the papers and sometimes they're comical, you know? <laughs> like for a while there was an obsession with food. Like all new nanomaterials were named nano and then after a food. But belts usually mean just something with a rectangular cross-section. So that's why we stuck with, with the belt, the belt in the name. Uh and uh, plasmon resonance, um, what, what, what exactly is that? Yeah, so plasmons are sort of a subfield of nanophotonics. So there's different yeah. ways you can manipulate light at the nanometer scale. You can go with dielectric structures like glass, or you can go with semiconductors, 
or you can go with metals. So metals yeah. do this interesting thing. So if you think, you know, the reason a metal is a metal is it has those free electrons in it that, you know, drift around and make currents. So when light hits a metal, you know, light is an electric field that oscillates, so it pushes those free electrons. And that's why metal has the optical properties it has and lots of details there. But what's interesting is if you have a very small particle of a metal and the light comes in, it pushes the electrons up and down. And that's sort of like a mass on a spring. You know, when the electrons go out of the metal, they want to get pulled back in because they leave positive core, you know, ions behind them. And if they go down the other way, they want to get pulled back in. So the electrons are like a mass on a spring. Light is like a driving force. So you can think of a plasma resonance as just like a mechanical resonance of a mass on a spring. So at a certain light frequency, the electrons move up and down really big and cause a lot of scattering and a lot of absorption. And uh, that's right. a, basically a plasma resonance. Um, and it's sort of, it doesn't happen in all metals at the visible wavelengths. So some metals, it'll happen in the IR, some of it happen in the UV, or it's a problem that the metals oxidize. Like most metals, if you make a teeny nanoparticle, the whole thing would oxidize. So there's a few metals like gold and silver uh, that have this resonance in the visible and they, they're inert enough that you can actually have a piece of metal that's 10 nanometers and not a piece of oxide. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I sometimes feel, Jason, that um, these properties that these precious metals have, like gold and silver, it's almost like somebody designed this to be that way. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, it's really, I mean, the history of this is unbelievable. It goes, you know, prehistoric. They would find that the sand from certain rivers, when they made stained glass, it would be red. And the reason is it had little chunks of gold in it. And then Michael <laughs> Faraday is the one that figured out that's actually... It's the metal, it's the gold that's doing it. And if you take gold and get it into small enough particles, it turns red. So Faraday figured that out. And then me scattering theory was one of the main things he was figuring out is why do these gold particles turn red? So one of the original uh, electromagnetic theories of scattering was based on this as well. So it's sort of been experimentally seen for a long time, but it's only been used uh, since around the 2000s when we started to get enough nanochemistry going to make really monodispersed shapes of different kinds of gold and silver nanoparticles. So that's when the field really exploded with all these different shapes and silly names and everything, you know, coming out. Yeah. And, and so, so if, um, if I understand this correctly, Jason, so you have a rectangular cross-section um, nano belt mm -hmm. of gold mm -hmm. and uh, in the visible wavelength, when light hits that, uh, there is some phenomenon like the electrons, free electrons moving out, and then pulled back in. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they sort of, uh, you can get into some sort of a resonance there. Right. Uh, so, so, so that's idea, right? So, so can we use this for anything from a practical perspective? Yeah, so that's really what I found interesting about about this area, and I actually don't remember exactly why we did the first paper, but but <laughs> retrospectively, what I find interesting, I don't know what I was doing at the time, is that, you know, there's huge studies on these plasmonic nanoparticles and many others, you know, quantum dots and everything, for like zero, what I'd call zero dimensional particles. So even if it's a little elongated rod or it's a cube or whatever it is, it's still nano in every dimension. It's like a point particle to us. Um, and there's a lot less on just elongated things like wires. I mean, I mean, you know, people in the field will say, wait a minute. I mean, there are semiconductor nanowires. Those are very widely studied. But metal nanowires, which you would think would be the most fundamental material in nanoscience, 
for some reason, just aren't as frequently synthesized and aren't as widely studied. There are applications and people are, you know, pursuing them. So one is uh, transparent conductors. So if you want, maybe for a sensor or something, you want something that completely see through, but will conduct electricity, like maybe you need to pass current through it, or maybe you don't want it to get uh, static charge on it, whatever. Um, one way to do that, well, there's a lot of ways. One is to use sort of a, some semiconductor that's transparent and visible, but still, you know, uh, enough current will flow through it, like indium oxide or something. Mm -hmm. Another would be to put a really thin metal film on it, but a really thin metal film uh, still absorbs some light. So you still get a little bit of a tint, you know, like if you think about sort of the IR blocking windows and buildings, they always look a little bit green, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. But another idea is to coat it with really fine, you know, metal wires that you could just spin on from solution. And uh, then yeah. their optical absorption would be just negligible. But because they make a network, they would give you a little bit of conduction, which is all you need for a lot of these applications. Or their net sense, you know, be dense enough that if you touched it, you would definitely complete a circuit that could potentially be a sensor. Yeah, so this resonance phenomenon, uh, can it be used in any sort of information storage? Yeah, so th that's another thing that was interesting about these wires is um, there had been a little bit of synthesis on them before. You know, we were kind of following another paper, and it was when I looked at them in a microscope that we saw the colors. Like, nobody had really thought about whether they would have a sharp plasmon or not. I mean, a sharp resonance yeah. that would give it a color. And we look at them in the right kind of microscope that we used a lot. And they were all red and green and yellow. And we realized they have this sharp resonance. So that gets into sort of a lot of potential applications of these plasmons, um, some in information storage. So, you know, you could shine, like we actually have some of the belts that change color from one end to the other. You know, so you could uh, shine maybe red and excite one end red and see if green comes out the other end or excite the red end green. So there's lots of, I mean, these are sort of futuristic ideas. They're mostly Definitely. conduits, but then there's a lot of things you can do where you can, when you send light into one end of the wire and turn it into a plasmonic excitation, and then it comes out the other end as light again, while it's that plasmonic excitation, it's really shrunk down to a very sort of novel state of light. And people have worked on, if you put a quantum dot nearby, when it goes by, it can excite the quantum dot. And if it excites the quantum dot, then you lose the, the plasmonic excitation. If the quantum dot's already excited, it'll just go by. So there's a lot of interest in putting sort of quantum dots near these wires to make sort of single photon kind of uh, transistors. So a lot of work has gone into that. The belts, uh, you know, we showed that they acted as conduits, but uh, we didn't, you know, we're not really a quantum, uh, we're not that kind of a group. <laughs> so we didn't go much further. Yeah. yeah. So, so what exactly is a quantum dot? Yeah, so quantum dot. So that is another kind of nanomaterial. So that's a really, really small piece of semiconductor. So it sort of acts like a, a just a big atom or molecule because you get these discrete states. And then when you shrink the semiconductor down to really small size, the spacing between those states gets so big that the spacing between the states gives you like visible photons. So when you see like a quantum dot LED TV or whatever, and uh, I think they make quantum dot TVs now, those are just quantum dots that their size determines their color. And that's how it, it emits the light. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I was going to say a lot of applications in display. Right. I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. Right. For the so for the yeah. semiconductors because they're not so lossy. The metals that are acting like wires in between them, like that I worked on or that I'm synthesizing, 
it's the high loss in the metal that's an issue. So there's lots of tricks people work on, like what kind of, a, of, a, of an electronic mode do you use to transmit this, this light? If you have one where the field is in the metal, you get a lot of loss, but you can try to find another mode where the field is mostly outside the metal and then you get less loss. So that, that can be done at macroscopic scale, but similar tricks are being tried sort of at a microscopic scale. Yeah. The, the energy is really small, right? It, it cannot have any storage type application. Yeah, so I think, yeah, no, so yeah, so you'd have to get into statics and making capacitors would be the generic way uh, to store. I mean, yeah. there are ring modes in dielectric structures where, you know, a, a photon will just go in there and ring around for a long time. Uh, and they're so low loss, it lasts a while. But I don't think it's, I don't think anybody's thought of it as an energy storage yet. I think compared to any chemical system, it doesn't even come close. So I think that's why they're still, still using the chemistry. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was wondering more, you know, sort of um, space applications where the weight, uh, you know, to, to storage ratios are, you know, so, sort of very critical. Yeah. I wondered. Oh, yeah, some... there. So if we get away from the photonics a bit, and then these really fine wires yeah. could be electrodes in sort of ultra capacitors is another application. You know, you want to get the highest, uh, mm -hmm. you want to get, if rather than storing your energy chemically in a battery, you're going to store it, you know, I'm making air quotes electrostatically in a capacitor. You just want the biggest surface area you can get. So there's always interest in increasing surface areas of structures by just sort of coating them with very high, very fine wires like this. And that's one application. Now that we're doing the nanobelts again, we're kind of thinking about, you know, yeah. Yeah. Long time ago, I remember, Jason, um, when electric cars uh, were beginning to, you know, make sense, yeah. uh, there were thoughts about uh, using capacitors as energy source rather than the, the batteries that we currently yeah. have. Um, I don't know what happened to that. Is that still in place? I think, you know, fields come and go. <laughs> so I know ultra capacitors, it's kind of what I was talking about just a second ago about putting the nanowires on there. Ultra capacitors did get very uh, popular, especially as nanomaterials started coming out. And I think they're still working on it. I mean, I think it's ultimately just a capacity issue. You know, I mean, it's just, they, they store less energy, but they can deliver it much faster and they weigh less, right. but they store less energy. <laughs> so so ultimately, you know, if they, if they don't store enough to drive all the way to San Antonio from where I am, then it's not gonna be as good as a battery. <laughs> yeah. um, but so, but I think the ultra capacitors do have sort of niche applications where you need that power really fast without, you know, melting a battery down. So, so I think they have niche applications, but I think um, replacing big capacity batteries, I don't, I don't think they're there yet, so. Yeah, it's it's sort of correlated with the infrastructure. So if I have a charging station, let's say every fifty miles reliably, yeah. and it takes me only five, you know, to fifteen seconds yeah. to charge up, it will be almost like driving yeah. through. So if you had infinite you know, infrastructure capability, you wouldn't have to stop, right? <laughs> Just have some electrodes on the ground, which are, you know, <laughs> then you're basically a train yeah. eventually, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I want to go into another paper. Um, it's, uh, it's related, obviously, uh, novel uh, plasmonic structures based on gold mm -hmm. nanobells. Um, so it's a little later than the in the first mm -hmm. paper. Um, so so what is the uh, what, what are you looking at here? Uh, you you talked about quantum dots already. Right. Uh, it, was that the sort of the direction? So yeah, there? so the novel uh, structures. We just found all these novel structures. So we we wrote a paper about them. One though was the fact that, so this gets a little bit more into the, the plasmonics uh, resonances of those belts. So 
if the cross section of the belt is square, the uh, Poisson resonance is green. It happens at green wavelengths or green frequencies, 530, whatever, nanometers. Um, and then if it goes elongated, it happens more in the red. So, you know, 700 nanometers or so. And we found there are structures where it would just evenly shift from green to red. So structurally, the belt is going from a square cross-section, then it's spreading out into a wide cross-section. But then optically, when you look at it, it's just this nice little thing that changes color. So in a sense, we thought this is kind of like a, a spectrometer, but a very different kind of spectrometer. So in a normal spectrometer, you take light of all these mixed colors and you shine it off of like a something called a diffraction grating, and that makes it reflect out at different angles. But this little plasmonic, I think we called it a plasmometer. I don't know if we said that in the paper, but what we could do is say you wanted to measure um, how different plasmon wavelengths enhance like quantum dot emission. You know, if, if you make your plasmon energy match your quantum dot energy, then you get more light out. So I think one figure in that paper was we took one of these uh, tapered belts, we called them, and covered it with quantum dots and just looked at the emission and it was brightest where the quantum dots uh, were resonant with the belt, somewhere between red and green. So it was basically like a structural way to measure the the excitation spectrum of the quantum dots. That was just sort of a weird thing. Nobody, you know, never really thought about being able to do, but it's something that this weird structure let us do. Yeah. So, so uh, potentially some applications in astronomy, then, right? Yeah. So let's see. If you wanted to sort of, uh, if you wanted to, really, the idea is it would miniaturize something. Like if you needed. Yeah. I mean. Long term, maybe we could make it higher resolution and, and everything, but but it wouldn't require like the long arm of you know hitting a grating and then when you hit a grating, you got to let the light spread out for a very long distance. So this is sort of like a spectrometer you could put on a chip because you don't need that that separation. It's just a completely different kind of way to do it. You don't need the the angle difference from the grating is very small, so you got to let it go for a long way to get the the wavelength separated. Where this is more of a direct separation. So again, applications where weight is a consideration, um, maybe telescopes, space space telescopes. Yeah, potentially. Like yeah, if you, if you sort of had these on some something where you could where you could detect which part of the belt was getting excited, then potentially you could you could really shrink this and have sort of a chip level spectrometer. So I could I could imagine that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I want to go into uh, one of your recent papers, uh, Jason, a structural analysis by enhanced. Uh, Raman scattering. Um, so Raman scattering, what what is so that? So Raman scattering, it's a it's a special kind of light scattering. So so if you think about uh, when light scatters off of an object, then um, well, let's kind of start over because <laughs> it depends on the color yeah. of the object. Okay, so let's imagine we have a white object, right? and uh, you have a white marble, mm -hmm. and if you shine green light off of this white marble, you're going to get green light scattering off of it because the, the marble being white just tells you that scatters all wavelengths the same. So that's called Raleigh scattering. Yeah. So the color that goes in is the same color that comes out. So if you think about it in terms of photons, no, there was no energy change. You know, The energy of the photon coming in is the same as the energy of the photon coming out. But now if you replace right. this ideal white marble with a molecule, the molecule is vibrating. So molecular vibrations are an important thing in analysis and chemistry that really happen. So when the light scatters off the molecule, it can actually lose some energy to the vibrations. Like the light can create a vibration, or since the molecule is already vibrating, it can give some energy to the light. It can take energy away from the vibrations. So, so most of the light 
has the same color, but a little bit of light gets its color changed by interacting with the vibrations. So if you take a spectrum of the light that scatters off something, most of it will be the original color. You know, you use a laser, so it's monochromatic. But then a little bit in the wings of the spectrum will reflect the vibration of the molecule. So this effect was discovered by uh, uh, Sir Raman uh, in like I think the 20s or something like that. And he won the Nobel Prize and everything. So it was a very fundamental idea that light does lose energy when it uh, bounces off something. But now it's a huge tool for analysis. So in chemical analysis, vibrational analysis is very powerful. And it's usually called IR because the energies of the vibrations are at infrared wavelengths and kind of way infrared, not just kind of a little bit infrared. I can feel it, but, but way out there. Um, and unfortunately, that's just the technology for that isn't as good. You know, the sensors aren't as sensitive. You can't make lasers. It's not as bright, et cetera. So Rama scattering is sort of an interesting thing. It's a way to use visible light where our technology is very good. You know, we have lasers and single photon sensors and everything, but you get the vibrational information because you just get it based on how much the visible light shifts. You're not directly trying to measure the infrared uh, vibrations. So basically Roman is just a way to get this sort of fingerprint spectral information um, with visible technology. So, so, so can we get um, sort of the structural information meaning um, you know, a, a complex molecule or something like that um, and get information. Yeah, so that's, that so that's the power of Raman. So, so it's called a fingerprint uh, spectrum because it has the, you know, if you imagine every one of these big complicated biomolecules or other big molecules all vibrate in their own special way. So you can say, well, this vibration is going to tell me exactly what molecule I have. So that's sort of an ideal situation. As you can imagine, with millions of different molecules, a lot of them vibrate pretty similar, you know? So you don't really have this, you know, perfect, I can identify any molecule in the universe uh, based on its Raman spectrum. There's a lot of overlap, but there's still plenty of chance for insight. So, so especially in research labs, if you're working with very pure solutions of identical molecules, you can learn quite a bit from the Raman spectrum. Yeah. And on like these biomembranes I talked about, if you can make a biomembrane from a single uh, lipid component, lipids are the molecules that make membranes, then yeah, there's a lot of structural information you can get and you combine the Raman with other methods and you get a lot of insight. But if you just shot a Raman spectrometer at a tree, you know, you're just gonna get a big mess jumble of spectra and it's, it's harder to apply in sort of the natural world. Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, Jason, so I wondered if there's some sort of diagnostic applications, for example, in pharmaceuticals, or something like that, where you know, once the product yeah. is approved, uh, you know precisely you know what that chemical is is uh, yeah. supposed to be, and um, you know if, if you want to look at if there is any sort of contamination or something like that, would it be um, would it be uh, sensitive enough? Yeah, so that's that? so you sort of uh, uh, hit exactly where Raman is used. So widely used in research labs. Industry is harder, but basically just think of industries where they're looking at pure things and that's where it's probably going to be used. And I'm not like an expert on <laughs> the world uses of Raman, but pharmaceuticals is definitely one, right? They make all these pills. They want to make sure there's nothing they don't expect in the pills so they could scan those under a Raman spectrometer. Right. Um, cosmetics also, you don't want to put something on your skin that you don't know what's in it. And those tend to have a fairly finite number of, uh, of uh, ingredients in them. So yeah, so there are some real world applications. Raman is not super sensitive. But, you know, for those applications, I mean, optics is so good now that it's it's kind of good enough. 
And, and the key is, you know, you could use it in those applications because you have a giant milligram scale pill to look at. If you want to detect like one molecule on the pill, yeah. then Raman, that's the problem with Raman is it's not super sensitive. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you talk about here, um, the lipid double bond was found to be oriented normal to the bilayer, the 13 angstrom from a from, so, so, so you can really potentially get the, the real structural information of a complex molecule, right? If you know precisely what that molecule yeah, is. Yeah, but, but this gets like. into the, uh, uh, into so there's Raman and now there's SARES. So this is now getting into what makes, brings in the nano component. Yeah. So let me explain real quick. SARES is surface enhanced Raman scattering. So what happens is, so, so the Raman I described was just a plain wave of light, hits the material, scatters off, and that's all you're looking at. So, and as I said, Raman's not real sensitive. So, you know, if you send in a million photons, 999,999 are gonna Rayleigh scatter, and one is gonna Raman scatter. So you, so you don't get a lot of signal. But these metal nanostructures, you know, these that have these plasmon resonances, they basically focus the light down onto a molecule at their surface, and then they act like an antenna and broadcast the scattering. So that's what the surface enhanced part means. Mm -hmm. Molecules at their surface great, get greatly enhanced Raman scattering. And the enhancement can be sort of like 100 million just because of the physics of how it works. So you get really huge enhancements. So SARES, surface enhanced Raman scattering, uh, has actually been shown to give you the vibrational spectrum all the way down to a single molecule. If you make the right arrangements of yeah. metal structures, you can get just huge enhancements and watch single molecules jump around and everything. So that, you would think that would have big applications. Yeah. It's just hard to get SARES, it's hard to make it real reproducible. So what we did is say, forget getting the super high enhancements. Let's just look at particles in solution and take medium enhancements and see if we can understand the signals and get structure. Is basically what we did in that paper. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. You say here that uh, the new method can determine specific interfacial structure under, under ambient conditions with microscopic um, quantities of material in the third yeah. molecular label. So, yeah, I, I see uh, just like uh, you're doing it in the lab, uh, potentially industrial applications. Um, I see more on the diagnostic side, uh, Jason, you know, because it takes little energy, it's easy to, I'm uh, just yeah. making yeah, statements, yeah, yeah. I don't know if this is true, uh, it, it, to convert that into yeah. some sort of an instrument. Uh, yeah, that's what we're working right? on Well, long term. Is, so it is true the method is very easy. So and if I was, you know, right now, so, you know, this is how science works. <laughs> you get a way to do something. Then if you really want it to catch on, you got to convince other people to do it, <laughs> you know, or you want to look at their samples or, or get, I'm sort of in that stage of I've now demonstrated this. Now I got to look at a bunch of systems and get people excited and realize uh, what this method can do. Um, so it's sort of like, I kind of think of it a little bit like NMR, you know, NMR is widely used method yeah. and it's a method that really is a spectroscopy but there's a little bit of structural information buried in the spectra. So that's basically what I'm doing with SARES. It's just spectroscopy, but we can tease structural information out and, and sensing and things like that. But it's a lot easier. You know, really, if somebody already has a Raman spectrometer, like all of industry does, you really just need the nanoparticles and all the computational stuff I had to do, you know, on DF, you know, calculating molecular properties and everything. So it's something that could be very easily uptaken by industry or other researchers, you know, relative to like NMR, where you've got to <laughs> install a whole facility. But uh, finding what to do with it, that's, 
trickier. So I think one thing I've thought about is, um, is it's it, this Ceres has the same problem of Raman that there's just too many signals. But if you put this lipid bilayer like we're putting on the particles, then that sort of holds back most things. Like the only thing that's going to get near the particle is stuff that likes to be in a lipid bilayer. So you sort of got this instant screen for you know 99% of the junk in the solution, and it will just accept sort of the membrane uh, attracted molecules. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you have a practical instrument, uh, presumably, Jason, you can, you know, attach a brain to it. You can do some machine learning uh, techniques. You know, if, if the decision is sort of binary, um, you know, meaning it it is it is good stuff yeah. or it's not good. Stuff. No, that's yeah. uh, it might be. Yeah, that specific bond you mentioned, that carbon carbon double bond, that's actually used in. Uh, it's it's diagnostic for like cancer. You know, when they're doing the margins when they're in surgery. So there's one group at UT Austin who yeah. is actually doing sort of during the surgery um, uh, uh, mass spec. You know, mass spec is a very powerful industry. So everything can be solved by mass spec. Um, and they have this little tool that they'll do surgery and they'll like suck the margins around the surgery and get a quick measurement on how much carbon-carbon double bond is in the lipids. And that'll help guide them in whether that's malignant yeah. or they need to cut further. So this is another thing that in principle, we could begin to kind of measure the relative amount of, of carbon double bond in the tail relative to the nor normal lipids. So, yeah, and then that would be something where you'd want a machine making that decision quickly rather than me sitting there going, well, I don't know. <laughs> so, Yeah, and if you can do it right, uh, right. in the operating theater, yeah. right during the procedure, Oftentimes, um, you know, what happens is you go back and you study it and uh, you say there is enough margin, right. so you have a second surgery. So if, if you can avoid that. Yeah, no, this, this group actually, huge. the so, method was so successful, they actually have a mass spec in the operating room, at least in this, in this test demonstration phase. So it's a little wand that just sucks material, goes straight to a mass yeah. spec because mass spec is very advanced uh, technologically. But I, I guarantee if they can put a mass spec in an operating room, I can put a little baby Raman spectrometer. <laughs> That's another advantage of the Raman. It's just a little teeny. It's not a, it doesn't have to be a big fancy instrument. So it's it's pretty low tech compared to other things. So, right, yeah. right, yeah. I mean, that's attraction here, I think. You know, uh, the instrument will be really small. It can be potentially incorporated yeah. into existing hardware, um, yeah. you know, presumably. And, uh, if it's giving you information during a procedure um, that you know yeah. things are working or not. Yeah, there's lots of examples of people trying to use Raman in, in these ways during surgeries on natural samples. And that's really a direction the field I think is headed and what I'm working on some now, you know, even in my own work on the, the method where we're looking at the lipids is, you know, we use quantum chemistry to predict these modes. Well, you know, part of this method I did was we used quantum chemistry programs to you got to know something about how the molecule vibrates and how the Raman properties change. And I did that. I'm not a theorist, but there are commercial packages that let you do that. But I did that on just an ideal molecule structure and that'll predict one spectrum, but then molecules are always fluctuating around, you know, around all the single bonds, their rotations. And how does that affect the Raman spectrum? So my latest paper, I didn't send it to you. It's, we're still, it's still under review is uh, looking at how molecular conformers affect these spectra and affect the interpretation of the Raman spectrum. 
which is just a further complication in, in this yeah. interpretation. Yeah. But really, that's key to all the applications. Is I've read papers, and I don't want to be critical, but I've read papers where they say, here's a spectrum, and they, this is the funniest thing about vibrational spectroscopy, is they always say, we assign the modes. <laughs> and I think in this field, I think assign is a euphemism, <laughs> which basically means we don't know that these are the modes, but these are the assignments of the modes. Because it's just, you get a lot of dense information, but I think knowing what every peak really is, I think there's a long way to go to really know. Yeah. 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 And uh, as you say, uh, human bias get into interpretation. So you're going to get yeah. a lot of confirmation yeah. bias. <laughs> yeah. And this is where really problem. quantum chemistry needs yeah. to just get faster and faster. So, and it is getting faster and faster. So, um, you know, the, just the ability to measure, to calculate a Raman spectrum uh, on a big molecule only came out like 20 years ago. And I'm sure only one, you know, you needed a supercomputer to do it. And all the calculations I'm doing now in 2021 are on a gaming PC. You know, I just spent about an $1,800 gaming PC and I can get pretty accurate calculations on pretty big molecules. But it needs to go even further. And we need to basically combine, you know, molecular dynamics to get all the confirmers and these quantum calculations for every step of the molecular dynamics, right? That's called ab initio molecular dynamics. And that is not fast yet, but eventually it will be. And I think we could calculate really highly realistic Raman spectra at that point. Yeah, a lot, lot of interesting things here, uh, Jason. So in conclusion, you have done a lot of work in this area of uh, nanomaterials. Um, if you look forward five to ten years, um, what what do you, where do you think we will be? Uh, I, I'm thinking more in terms of applications. I know that you are sort of sitting at the intersection of you know research coming out of the labs. Uh, there there appears to be at least some practical directions. Do you see we will get? Yeah, there in I five think years? you know this is this is always the tough question. Uh, I think a lot of the nano medicine that was sort of talked about in the early 2000s. A lot of it is getting very real. And I think one reason people don't realize why is that none, no, you know, as we know with cancer at this point, there's not gonna be a day that we cure cancer, right? There's not gonna be a single method that cures all cancers. But a lot of these methods are really happening in the clinic. You know, the one from my field that I think about is the photothermal therapies where they put sort of the uh, gold nanoparticles, gold nanoshells. A lot of this actually was, came out of rice from my colleague, Naomi Hollis and uh, Jennifer West. And they put those and they go to a tumor and then you shine the infrared light and it heats up and cooks the tumor, you know, inside the body. So that was first shown around 2000 and you say, well, where is it? Why, you know, and then they had to go to human trials. It takes forever, but it really is happening in people and it's really being used. It's just, they're going to be used according to the doctors and the cases where they should be used, which isn't going to be all the cases. So I think all this nano medicine, all these applications are basically going to sneak up and one day we're going to say, oh, well, it's everywhere you know, because there are real patients doing it now. And I think the doctors just have to figure out when is it better than the standards and, you know, when should we try one over the other? But I think the nanomedicine is going to really uh, become more and more common. Yeah, yeah it, it's, um, you know, the, the approval process, the standard of care definition, it has right. to get into the medical school education. So, so there's a lot of yeah. process yeah. friction. I, I know think. that, and I'm not even one of the PIs <laughs> trying to do it. I mean, you could talk to my <laughs> uh, Hollis and West. I'm sure they're very well aware of, of all the difficulties. But yeah, but after 20 years, I mean, yeah. you know, people really are are being injected with these. And, and I'm just speaking of that one specific application because I know it. I'm sure there's many uh, nanomedicine applications that really are starting to happen. Yeah.
yeah. It's it's exciting. Yeah, this has been great. Sure, it was great. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and good luck with this research. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.